Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. This is going to be episode 129 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and I've got something I think you're going to like, something very interesting, a conversation I recently had with Dr. Jim Cunnigan. And Jim is a very interesting and cool guy. He's been a very long-time listener of the Dangerous History Podcast, which right off the bat makes him pretty cool in my book. And he's also a bit of a renaissance man, so something I always appreciate. He's a guy who dabbles in a lot of things. And in Jim's case, among the things he dabbles in are beekeeping and fermenting just about anything that's fermentable. He's always posting on Facebook about some crazy alcoholic concoction he's got brewing or what have you. But he also is an interesting guy because he has a background in psychology and is, in fact, a practicing psychiatrist. Jim has given two presentations at two Liberty events that I was also present at, the Pork Fest and the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest of this year, 2016, as I'm recording this. And in both cases, I missed his presentation. In the case of Pork Fest, he did it earlier in the week before I got there. I was only there for the last few days of that event. And in the case of the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, I think his presentation went a couple hours after I had already left. And it was one of those things where I was driving to the Chicago airport, so I had to leave with enough time to drive whatever it was, a couple hours to get there and make my flight. And I got there and my flight was delayed by some ridiculous amount of time, five hours or something like that. So I very easily could have stayed at the fest and gone to Jim's presentation had I known. But of course, I did not at the time know my flight would be delayed. So I've had a lot of interactions with Jim online over the past couple years or so, and I had met him and chatted with him in person. So it was cool to have him on the Dangerous History Podcast because he has a much deeper background and expertise in psychology and psychiatry than I do. I'm just sort of an interested amateur when it comes to that field. But Jim is a legit expert in this stuff. And in particular, he's done a lot of study on some of the famous psychology experiments, such as the Milgram experiment and the Stanford Prison experiment and so on. And so we're going to talk about some of these experiments and kind of the lessons we can draw from this. And it ended up being a very interesting freewheeling conversation, which I think listeners to the Dangerous History podcast will enjoy. The conversation ended up going on for longer than I expected, which is a good thing, although part of it was because of technical snafus. I had a computer issue at one point, and then at one point we simply dropped the call, and I'm still not even sure what the problem was there, but these are the gremlins you deal with when you're trying to conduct podcast interviews and conversations over the internet. So anyway, I'm, I'm very pleased to share my conversation with Jim, with you all. And first, though, I have some awesome people to thank for stepping up to support the show via Patreon. Big thank yous go out to Dave, Alex, Samantha, and Chris. They are all people who have stepped up since the last show that I recorded to support the Dangerous History Podcast on an ongoing per-episode basis via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And just as a reminder to everybody listening, if you're not already a Patreon supporter of this show, that if you step up to support the show at just a minimum of a dollar per episode, and more is certainly welcome, but for a dollar or more per episode, you are then eligible to access special bonus episodes that are available in Patreon that can not be accessed anywhere else. And just to clear things up, I've actually had several listeners in recent weeks 
contact me kind of unsure about where the bonus episodes are, and they are not in my site. Part of the reason I use Patreon is that it provides the infrastructure for me of being able to share bonus content via their site without having to do all the work or paying someone to do all the work to set up my site to be like a, to have a membership area. And so on my list of all episodes page, I do list the Patreon episodes, and that's simply so that people can see some of the things that I've covered in those episodes, and hopefully it'll entice them to support the show, but you don't actually access those episodes via my site. You go to Patreon, and once you've signed up to support my show, then you log into your Patreon account, and you'll be able to access the bonus episodes from in Patreon. Like, that's that's where I post the bonus episodes when I make them. I post them to Patreon. I upload them into Patreon, and that's where they're available. So I just wanted to clear that up just in case anyone else has any questions or confusion about that. Also, if you sign up to support the Dangerous History Podcast at a dollar per episode or more via Patreon, you'll have the right, if you so choose to exercise it, to join the Facebook group the private Facebook group for Patreon supporters of this show, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors, and so that's another perk as well. And as always, I will put a link to my Patreon page in the show notes for this episode, and I'll also link to my DHP Amazon wishlist, which consists of items that will help me with the show, so if you're faced with the vexing problem of having too much money or Amazon credit and not knowing what to do with it, well, there's something you could put it to use for. You can get me something off that wish list, and I'll be sure to thank you by name in the next episode I make after I receive whatever it is you order for me. So, anyway, without any further ado, I present my conversation with Jim Cunnigan on the psychology of power and obedience. Okay. Well, uh, Jim, thanks for coming on the Dangerous History Podcast today. All right. Thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on because you've you've got a background in, in psychology and psychiatry, and you've given some presentations at, at uh, Porkfest and at Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, both of which I was not able to attend. I think at Porkfest it was before I showed up there, and then at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest – it was shortly after I left that you gave your presentation. And unfortunately, I, I got to the airport and ended up having to wait in the airport for like seven hours because my flight was delayed anyway. But uh, had I known, I would have rather just hung out and got to hear your presentation. But I got to hear a recording of it anyway, so that was good. And you've got um, some some knowledge and, and more in-depth knowledge of some of these things than I do when it comes to psychology. I'm a, an interested amateur, let's say. And I think it's got a lot of important insights that can help us understand things like history and questions of power and mm-hmm. and what have you. So anyway, that's that's why I thought it'd be cool to talk to you. Plus, you're a longtime listener of my show, so uh, yeah. I figured we could have a good conversation. All right. No, that's uh, again. Yeah, thanks for having me, and yeah, I'm happy to help out. So. All right. Well, the first thing I, I wanted to ask about was uh, what what you've given presentations on, at least one of which I've heard, and that's the famous Milgram experiments. So 
I am going to link in the show notes to this episode to an episode you did recently with Nick Hazleton on the Anarcho-Yakitalist podcast, where you talk, I think, pretty much entirely about these experiments. So we don't have to necessarily cover everything that you covered there with Nick, mm-hmm. um, but I'll, I'll link to that so the, the listeners can check that out too. But could you give us just sort of the basic sketch of what the Milgram experiments were? Right. Uh, well, St- Stanley Milgram was a uh, social psychologist, and he did some experiments back around. You know, he started his groundwork in the late '50s, but early '60s is when he did his um, the things that he's really famous for. Uh, and then basically, he concocted an experiment where somebody would come in thinking they were coming in to do a study on using punishment to facilitate learning or to test their responses. Um, you know how punishment affected learning. Um, and he thought he was there with another random person who came in for the experiment, but the other random person was actually, uh, you know, cohort of the experimenters and they thought they were being ran, you know, her, he, the subject thought he was being randomized. It was actually always, um, arranged to be the quote unquote teacher in the experiment. And the other person would be the quote unquote learner. The learner would be strapped into a chair with electrodes placed on him to deliver an electric shock. And the subject actually would experience one of these shocks. It's like, here, here's what this guy's going to feel. And they give them, you know, 45 volts or something like that. Um, they would be in separate rooms. Typically, there were some variations, but often they were in separate rooms. And then the teacher would read some word pairs. They were just kind of random, you know, random matching of words. And then expect the person to memorize them and repeat them or be able to re- recognize them when they were read back. And they would have like buttons to hit for like a multiple choice test sort of thing. And the button would light up on the teacher's board he had in front of him. And whenever the quote-unquote learner was wrong, the teacher was supposed to administer a shock, and the shock was supposed to increase progressively from 15 volts to 450 volts. As this progressed, the learner, who was not really being shocked, would start verbally protesting, and then eventually would demand to be released, and then towards the end of the progression of shocks, would scream in agony, say he had a heart condition and was experiencing chest pain, and then stop responding altogether. Um even after he stopped responding, typically the subject would ask the experimenter, who is someone dressed in a white lab coat in the room with him, well, what do I do now? And he's like, if he doesn't answer at all, after like two minutes, treat that like he answered incorrectly, hit the shock button, and keep going. He expected that not many people were going to do this. And in, in pilot studies, he was surprised at how he had to up the ante repeatedly in order to get any measurable disobedience from the subjects, that they would often just kind of march right along and administer the maximum shock. And that's when they introduced things like the person screaming in pain and saying I have a heart condition and whatnot. But um, the study I kind of described was the kind of baseline study he used for comparison and other, or as the baseline for comparing other variants that he would introduce to test, you know, it's like, well, maybe people were doing this because this reason, and they would introduce a variation to test that uh, theory. But 65% of the people tested would give, you know, the full 450 volt shock to somebody who had screamed, say they were having chest pain and a heart condition, and then became, for all intents and purposes, unresponsive and may have died. And so there's some uh, meaning there as far as uh, people who are interested in liberty, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's who, you know, obedience to authority is not our shtick. And so what makes this happen? You know, how, you know, um, none of these people expected they would do this you know they didn't survey these people in advance that would have tipped their hand in this study but they surveyed other people in advance you know it's like how many people do you think would do this do you think you would do this like oh hell no you know it's like that's barbaric that's horrible but when you put people in it without you know worrying them without knowing what they're really getting in for 
they did it. Uh, they often weren't happy doing it. You know, many would, you know, look like they were unhappy and would kind of voice protest against it, but then they would keep doing it. The experimenter would have a number of verbal prods that he would give whenever people said that they didn't want to do it. So he's like, I don't think I should do this anymore. It's like, no, this the experiment must continue was the first one. And then there were some others to keep encouraging the uh, teacher to progress with the experiment. Um, the last one being, you know, it's like you don't have any choice. The experiment must go on. Apparently, when that one was read, people would stop. But not many people protested enough or, you know, tried to break out of the experiment enough times to get to that final prod. If they ask who is responsible for what happened to the, you know, quote unquote learner, the experiment always said, I'm responsible. You're not responsible. Keep doing what you're doing, which is what Milgram was trying to elicit. And he because he was interested in what happened in World War Two, Germany, and especially in the Nuremberg trials, when people are like, I was just following orders. He was kind of looking. Are they just, you know, saying that to cover their ass and make themselves? No, no, no. I, I had no choice. Or do they really believe that? You know, in his research, while it's not obviously a one-to-one equivalency with what happened in Germany, kind of suggests that people in the right conditions have a tendency to follow orders from someone they believe is a legitimate authority. Some of the things he introduced to kind of um, test some independent variables, the closer you were to the victim – the less likely you were, you know, to shock the bejesus out of them, you know. So if they moved the victim out of an adjacent room into the room you're in, all of a sudden people weren't willing to shock him, you know, repeatedly. Versus uh, the closer you were to the authority figure, the more likely you were to be obedient to the authority figure. So if the authority figure left, you know, it's like, oh, I've got a phone call. I have to go, but keep doing it. Then they wouldn't completely break with authority. That was you know, Milgram's kind of endpoint was, you know, if they said, no, I'm not going to do it, you know, three times. All right. You don't need to do it anymore. Um, but they would kind of bend the rules, you know, so they wouldn't keep marching up with the shocks. They'd keep giving, you know, lower shocks around the very low end, which the person would even complain about. And then if the authority figure came back in, it's like, you do what I told you to. Oh, yeah, boss, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. But if he was gone, yeah, they'd, they'd start, you know, kind of fudging the rules there a bit. Um he introduced some other things, you know, like if we had two authority figures, so instead of one guy in a lab coat, there's two guys in lab coats. And one says, you know what, you should stop. And the guy says, no, 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 keep going. When all of a sudden there wasn't a clear message from a clear, recognized, quote unquote, legitimate authority figure, they stopped. And that was a repeated theme that if, you, you know, things they did to modify the victim got some results, but things they did that brought the legitimacy of the authority figure into question produced much more, you know, dramatic results. Now they would try and figure out who the big boss was. Um, you know, so you got the two guys in lab coats and like, all right, which one, you know, it's like if one of them would have said, listen, I'm the department chair, Johnson, I outrank you. And I say, keep going by how the people were acting. It looks like, Oh, okay. I should do what he says, you know, but without the clear, okay, I know who is in charge here and who I should follow. They, their background morality kicked in. You know, it's like, I'm not supposed to be shocking people. You know, this guy's innocent. He didn't do anything to me. I've got no reason to do this. You know, the experiment must go on. Whose experiment? Why must it go on? What happens if it doesn't go on? Um, but as long as they're kind of in what Milgram called the agentic state, you know, they have become made themselves an agent of someone else, that, that no longer becomes a question. They... Um, their morality is no longer connected with whether they are behaving right or wrong, but is instead is connected with whether or not they are behaving appropriately in the eyes of the authority figure. 
you know, and I said on Nick's podcast, you know, it is dependent somewhat on the um, belief in a greater good in the mind of the teacher, you know, the actual subject of the experiment that, well, I need to do this for science. And this guy is the, you know, high priest of this scientific experiment. And he says, I have to do this, you know, it's for the greater good. Sorry, buddy. Um, And so they'd go through with it. I was asked actually in Michigan about personality variations that may have modified the results, which I was not aware of at that time. And you actually found some, um, that there was a study in France, I believe that looked at personality features and people who were on personality scales, and you always have to question how valid these scales are and what they're measuring them, you know, versus what they're, they say they're measuring people who tended to be more agreeable or more, more conscientious were more obedient, um, which kind of is consistent with what Milgram, you know, witnessed qualitatively in his studies that the people were always polite to the experimenter, the guy in the lab coat. They always kind of deferred to him, even when they were kind of breaking disagreeing with them, they did it very, you know, very politely. You know, the few times people um, would get kind of rowdy was when the guy in the lab coat wasn't there. And, if, you know, they arranged some variations where a regular old guy, you know, it's like, oh, I have to go answer a phone call. But hey, this guy's the janitor. He'll sit in my place and tell you what to do. And the janitor saying, yeah, shock him, shock him. It's like, I'm not doing what you're, you know, it's like, you are not the high priest of science. I don't need to do what you say. You know, and and some of these, then the guy would try and sit down. Well, if you're not going to shock him, I'll shock him. And you sit down and, you know, if somebody actually picked up somebody and threw him across the room and wouldn't, you know, it's like, don't go near that machine again. You're not shocking that guy. But when it was the actual, you know, what I've been calling the high priest of science in the white lab coat, even when they're like, I don't want to be doing this, but and I'm not going to do it. They were very polite and deferential. And this is your lab. And so people who tended to test high on agreeability and conscientiousness, it's like, oh, this is not terribly shocking versus people who were more contrarian on the personality um, inventory they used. You know, it's like who were more willing to say, uh, uh-uh, I ain't doing it. You know, this doesn't make sense. Were less obedient. Um, I'm not terribly surprised that Milgram didn't test for this. He was a social psychologist and by the very nature of that subspecialty in the field, they're looking at what, um, you know, what is the, what are the situational forces? I think is how they put it. And how do those influence people? And it's almost dogmatic. And some of the things that Philip Zimbardo, who we'll talk about later wrote about, you know, is like, these things matter and people, you know, especially in, you know, quote unquote, individualized Western countries, put too much emphasis on individual personality characteristics. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Um, But by the nature of social psychology, it seems that, you know, they weren't looking at personality features. They were looking at what stimuli, you know, what social stimuli can we arrange that will induce certain behaviors Um, from the same French study back in 2014, apparently one particular outlying group that was less obedient were women who were described as being rebellious and politically political activists or also uh, people who are described as left wing. Uh, That was a French study. So I don't know if their left wing is similar to our left wing or not, but those people were described as in particular being resistant to, um, the pressures to become obedient. Some of the things Milgram uh, also said about his experiment or his series of experiments were creating a division of labor seemed to increase obedience. Um, and he wrote some other things on social psychology about, uh, you know, whether or not people in a small town versus a big city are willing to help a random stranger. And 
uh, whatnot. And there's kind of a specialization thing that kicks in. Uh, he, he described it as kind of the fragmentation of the process. You know, it's like the he arranged a study where the actual test subject wasn't shocking the person, but was reading the questions saying, yes, you're right or wrong. And then would direct another person who actually worked for Milgram to actually shock the person. And when they were no longer responsible for pushing the button to do it themselves, obedience went through the roof. Uh, like three out of 40 people actually were willing to disobey the experimenter in that context. Um, so still enough, you know, yeah, that's kind of like a little bit of hope, right? You know, it's like not everyone was willing to do it. You know, it's like, well, I'm not going to pull the trigger at the firing squad, but I will load the rifle for the person. And this is where my rickety old laptop decided it would be a great time to do a crap ton of updates out of the blue. So pretty hard to continue conducting a Skype conversation when your computer seizes up and shits the bed. But we'll then rejoin with where I was finally, after restarting my computer a couple of times, able to reconnect with Jim. I think, as as far as I know, that they've replicated the Milgram experiment across, like, different nationalities and different cultures, right? Yes. Okay, so were they able to get similar results, or were there variations? I mean, in other words, how much of this tendency of most people to to obey authority is due to... you know nature versus nurture right how much of it seems ingrained in the human species versus how much of it may be due to things like uh, child rearing practices and schooling and other elements of of cultural inculcation right um and i haven't looked into the you know replications that have been done across cultures in detail my understanding is you know from like a few summary statements that milgram made in one of his books is that they were at least comparable so there may be some variation, but there's not dramatic variation. Uh, now, part of why the results might be consistent um, is that there is a bit of self-selection going on. That, again, a lot of this depends on the subject slash teacher believing in the importance of the study. You know, the experiment must go on. And if he doesn't buy that, then he's not going to do it. Um People who are volunteering to participate in psychology experiments value psychology experiments happening. You know, it's like people who aren't showing up and say, this is all a bunch of crap, but I need the four bucks, which I think is what he paid back in the day. Um, You know, that doesn't happen a whole lot, you know. And so, you know, does that disprove what he's studying? No, but it kind of emphasizes that he's testing obedience to what people perceive as being a legitimate authority, you know, and so which when you watch any sort of political discourse on TV, people are always trying to discredit the other guy, you know, it's like, I'm the legitimate one. He's full of crap, you know? And so, cause if people believe that, no, he's a legitimate one. I'll, you know, again, the two people in the lab coat, you know, it's like, which one is the big boss? Cause I'll do what that guy says. But if I don't know who it is, then I ain't doing this. Like one study that was done kind of in a, you know, it's like maybe these people don't really think they're shocking folks because in like post interviews, like months afterwards, some of them was like, yeah, I knew what you were doing the whole time. It's like, really? You were sweating a whole lot and asking if you really need to shock the person. But OK, if you knew what we were up to the whole time, they did a uh, replication with instead of a human subject. I don't know how they tested the learning per se, but instead of a human subject, they had a dog and the dog was actually being shocked. And the numbers were pretty comparable, you know, that people were willing to shock this, you know, described in the study as a, quote, 
cute, fluffy puppy. End quote. You know, people were willing to do it if the guy in the lab coat told them to. So it seems pretty consistent. I'm not sure, you know, how much culture and society end up varying there. Now, um, Milgram also did some variations on uh, Solomon Ash's conformity experiments, which is on our agenda later on. But um, he did some of these across cultures and did notice some differences. I think he compared Norway to France as far as conformity is concerned. And Norway scored somewhat higher um, on conformity than France did. Um, but for the obedience thing, my understanding is it was pretty consistent. Okay, so so at least it seems possible, uh, e- even likely, that to some degree this is just a a common human tendency, right? That only kind of somewhat abnormal compared compared to the majority individuals are not susceptible to this this tendency to just do what authority says. Context matters a lot, and so does the experience of the person going into it one of the people who um was disobedient in one of his studies um was i think the child of um and right here is where the skype call dropped unexpectedly for no particular reason that i could figure out but we got it reestablished right away okay you were you were saying uh context matters and then we're starting to say something about okay, the background yeah, was, of a disobedient person in the experiment. Right. So if you could just kind of like re- restart that statement. Yeah, so the context matters that the person needs to believe in the legitimacy of what's happening um, and also kind of the background information of the person and their understanding of um, you know what's happening will influence them a great deal. That one particular disobedient subject um, was, I believe, the child of World War II era Germans. Um, you know, who had moved to the United States at some point. And he's like, I, yeah, compl- you know, it's like, yeah, this is, this is what happened in Germany. I ain't doing it, you know? And so his recognizing the pattern there was able to kind of inoculate him against the, you know, authority uh, that was being pressed on him. Yeah, one of the things that that's always struck me ever since I learned about the Milgram experiments is that, I mean, we all kind of know that that symbolism and symbols of authority and kind of pomp and circumstance, you know, we all know on some level that these things are hugely important and powerful, right? I mean, it's why when when a political leader comes somewhere, there's always a, a, a big amount of pomp and circumstance and, you know, there's all these special magical words you have to say to them and whatnot. But the the Milgram experiment, what, what I find so interesting and kind of troubling is that there's not even that much in the way of symbols of authority and power. It's nothing compared to like what a monarch does when they go out to give a, a speech or something. It's basically a white coat and a clipboard. And a white coat and a clipboard is enough to make people defer, you know. I mean, it, it, right. It's just incredible. There there were some, you know, and, and you know, different people you know, recognize different symbols as being um, a marker of valid authority. And they actually did introduce some uh, variable for that because a lot of the people in the early tests were like, it's like, well, you know, it's, we came here to Yale. It's Yale for crying out loud. And we're in this fancy office and you got your people with your fancy professor titles and everything. So yeah, it's, um, you know, and they're like, well, let's 
test that. So they went and found a strip mall and came up with a bogus, you know, the, you know, private research institute of, you know, New Haven, Connecticut or something, you know, and had them do it. And there was some, some decrease in, um, the obedience to authority. I don't have the numbers in front of me. There was some decrease. And then some of the people afterwards expressed more anxiety. It's like, you know, Oh shit. You know, I was like, I just may have killed a guy, you know, at a strip mall. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the guy running that show saying, no, 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 I'm taking responsibility didn't have quite the comforting effect as, you know, when it was, you know, a fancy guy working for Yale. But yeah, I think, again, that some of that is pre-selection, that if you didn't think this was legit, you didn't respond to the ad. You know, I, I have no real way of, you know, controlling or proving that. But that's one thing I'm leaning towards as, you know, if you didn't think this was legit, why would you show up there in the first place? So I think there's some pre-selection. I wonder if there's any way that you could ethically and legally run a version of the experiment where it wasn't people where there was some degree of self-selection going on. Right. That. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you could just sort of like randomly draft that. (laughs) Right. But um, yeah. And and the the ethics requirements for uh, psychological studies have clamped down a whole lot (laughs) since the uh, Milgram days. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just in, in general, like, what do you, what do you think are the, big takeaways that we can get from Milgram's experiments and all the other similar ones that have been run by other people since like, like what, what do you think this, this really tells us? Uh, Milgram is um, one of the things, and I mentioned this briefly earlier is, you know, that obedience is, you can kind of sabotage obedience much more effectively by sabotaging the impression of legitimacy in the authority figure. You know, it's like appealing to, you know, sympathy for the victim doesn't seem to be as effective. It's not ineffective, but it's not as effective as do what this guy says. You know, and it's like you don't need to do what this guy says. And one of the variations I didn't mention before, I did mention on Nick's show, was they introduced one where they, again, divided the task up of the teacher. But again, two of the people were working for Milgram. And as they would go along, one of them would say, that's it, I'm out. And uh, you know, and they would get up and they wouldn't leave. They'd go and sit, you know, somewhere in the room and say, I'm still, you know, I'll answer your questions for your study. I'm still respecting what you're doing, but I participate in this process. of shocking this guy and modeling that disobedience. You know, it was like some of the people it like woke them up. You know, it's like, wait a minute, that's an option. Oh, I didn't even know I could do that. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm not going to shock the guy either. Um, you know, and so. You know, if there's any hopeful message in it, it's, yeah, A, that delegitimizing the authority figure prevents people from going through and doing bad things on behalf of the authority figure and modeling disobedience results in other people, you know, breaking free from the spell themselves. You know, they're not coercing people. You're not hypnotizing people. You're not mind controlling them. You're almost doing the opposite. You know, it's like you don't need to do this if you don't want to. I'm not doing it anymore. If you want to join me, that's cool. You know, and people are like, oh, yeah, I, that, that sounds good. That actually might be a little bit of a good segue into um, Philip Zimbardo's study. He was the Stanford prison experiment guy. That one thing that, you know, again, people, a lot of people have like a psycho 101, very cursory knowledge of these things, which I did too until I started reading about them in more detail. Um, but one thing I don't know if many people know about regarding the Stanford prison experiment was that a lot of the guards weren't happy <laughs> with what they were doing. And it's, um, I guess I should give some background that the Stanford prison experiment, this guy went to uh, high school with uh, Stanley Milgram, Philip Zimbardo did. Uh, but instead of um, getting a 
psychology professorship out on the East Coast. He went out to California and he had had some experience dealing with people who had been in prison and he did like run courses where they had someone who'd been at San Quentin for, you know, 17 years come in and talk about their experiences. And he wanted to make a study testing what the effects of he was initially interested in the prisoners, but eventually became interested in what happened to the guards too. what happens to them kind of eliminating the self-selection aspect we had discussed with um, Milgram, you know, that people who are actually in prison, right or wrong, did something to get there. And people who voluntarily take guard, you know, jobs as prison guards may be self-disposed to that sort of work. Um, so what happens when we take a random selection, not random selection, but a selection of people who, you know, were in 18 to early mid twenties ish. Some of them were college students. Some were about to start college. Some, a few of them were grad students and randomize them and have them, you know, and we recreate a prison experiment, you know, or experience what happens to the people in that, uh, situation. And Interestingly, the people who had volunteered all said they preferred to be prisoners. None of them, you know, if they'd had their druthers, wanted to be prison guards. And and almost all of them said, I can foresee the potentiality of my becoming a prisoner someday. Um, I don't think I'm likely to just randomly, you know, end up taking a job as a prison guard. And I'm curious how I would deal with that. Um so he created this um, scenario where they had uh, nine people who were going to be prisoners in a basement somewhere at some building at Stanford. And they all wore simple smocks with no underwear, with a number stitched to the front of the smock, uh, sleeping on bear cots. And then they had guards who, you know, went and got their uniforms at the local army surplus store and all wore mirrored sunglasses and he had set, he laid some ground rules. The guards did not get very much training. And that ended up being very significant down the road. Uh, what was it he said regarding their training? He said, yeah, they gave no specific training, but they were told to maintain law and order. Uh, they were not to use any violence against the prisoners. And they were not to allow escapes, which already some of these rules are causing, you know, somewhat self-contradictory. It's like, how do I prevent an escape without using some sort of physical, you know, force, you know, it's like, don't run away or I'll tell you not to run away again. Um, but then he also told them, you know, this wasn't a specific rule he gave them, but said he wanted them to, he wanted to convey the kind of psychological mindset of the prisoners as being powerless. And, and he wanted them to create that amongst the prisoners. And so, and they kind of did that in spades. So these people who had, um, you know, been randomly selected to be prisoners, the actual um, local police had some folks who were available and they went in their squad car and they went and obtained these people at their homes or wherever it was they were, went and processed them at the local jail and then took them to the, the building at Stanford. They were blindfolded. Uh, they were stripped. They, you know, then had to put their hands up against the wall and were left there while the guards kind of sat around and you know talked and mocked the naked prisoners who were sprayed with a delousing powder and were, you know, kind of read the rules, you know, they were supposed to only identify themselves by number. And so there was a lot of effort to depersonalize them and kind of give them, you know, address them as a label. You know, they were a prisoner. They were not a human being anymore. And the guards would kind of say this, you know, it's like in the role playing is like, you've did something to be here. You've proven you can't function as a human being. And so we're here to rehabilitate you, uh, which they kind of took for granted. You know, it's like there was no real rehabilitative efforts that were being made, but it was being treated by the guards as if, simply being there was rehabilitative. 
one of the rules that they had, 17 rules they had to follow, um, number 15 was prisoners must obey all orders issued by guards at all times. A guard's order supersedes any written order. A warden's order supersedes both the guard's orders and the written rules, and the orders of the superintendent of the prison are supreme. Um, at which point, yeah, I was like, why do we have any written rules at all? You know, it's like, here are the written rules. Oh, yeah. And if we make anything up, that trumps the written rules. That kind of um, sounds like the Constitution. Right. It reminded me of something you said in one of your earlier shows where the Constitution should just kind of say the government can do whatever it can get away with. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what really happens. Let's not bullshit ourselves and pretend otherwise. You know, and so within days, you know, the prisoners were like barricading themselves in their rooms. Uh, hunger strikes broke out. The guards were taking the prisoners' clothing away. They had a closet that they used as, you know, the hole or, you know, solitary confinement, which they were supposed to keep people in no more than an hour. But within a day or two, we're keeping people in there for hours at a time. They actually had to, like, move stuff out of the closet because they were putting more people in the hole than they anticipated. And the whole thing, reading it, was a mess. Um, and, and Zimbardo wrote in his material that he was repeatedly surprised that no one said – kind of broke the fourth wall and said, look, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. Although there were hints, you know, the, one of the messages I got from this is, you know, beware people who think they have implied consent from others because they would never, they needed some sort of safety word. <laughs> um, yeah. if I can borrow that jargon, because they would meld, you know, or a means of differentiating. It's like, all right, now we're out of character. I don't understand what's going on. Can we establish that? And then I'll get back to in character. They're like, there was this weird back and forth without any clear differentiation. Like they had a mock parole board and in the context of this parole board, they asked the people like, would you be willing to give up your pay that you're getting for partaking in the experiment? If we paroled you, you know, and if we paroled you is kind of, you know, this is what Zimbardo is saying. And so he's doing this weird mismatch. You know, it's if we do this in the real world, you know, would you be willing to do that in order to get this benefit in our make-believe world? And not everyone said yes. This was a few days into the study. But it, the majority of them said, yeah, I'm willing to give up my money to get out of here is what I think they thought they were saying. Zimbardo heard, yeah, I'd be willing to do that if you paroled me. But then they were all denied parole. And then they all kind of like, all right. And they would put their hands up to get their handcuffs put on and get a paper bag put over their head and be, you know, um, escorted back to the, you know, prison in the basement. And the message they're all hearing is, no, you can't leave. You know, and, and Zimbardo's like, I wonder why none of them said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm out of here. And it's like, I think they thought they did. You know, but you heard yourself saying parole, you know, and so, yeah, the whole thing was a mess. <laughs> um but then also, I mean, one of the rules that the that the prisoners were told to um, memorize between when they were being ordered to spout off their prisoner numbers backwards, forwards in song form and then do push ups because they weren't saying it happily enough. You know, rule number nine was that prisoners must never refer to their condition as an experiment or simulation. They are imprisoned until paroled. You know, it's like you can't break character or you'll be punished. The whole thing was a mess. And, you know, yeah, people were going on hunger strikes. They were, um, you know, it's like eventually what kind of, you know, broke the spell again, if I can use that analogy again, was that Zimbardo's girlfriend, who was herself about to become a psych professor at UC Berkeley, uh, came by to see what he was doing. And he was like, oh, look at this. They're, they're escorting the prisoners because there was no bathroom in that basement they were using as the prison. And so in order to, you know, 
perpetuate the illusion that they were in prison. They didn't want them walking out and seeing the outside world. And, you know, so they put paper bags over their heads. They chained them all together and, you know, kind of marched them out to the bathroom. Meanwhile, the guards would also kind of have them walk into a wall here or there, you know, and they would stand in the bathroom to use a urinal with a bag over their head, which I don't imagine helped accuracy any. Um, you know, they were punished by needing to, like, scrub out bathroom, you know, the toilet with their bare hands. It was just ridiculous um but yeah she you know he's like oh yeah come here look what they're taking the prisoners to the bathroom come here look at this and he's like are you kidding me and they went and got in a big argument about it and initially he kind of challenged her you know academic chops you know and it's like how can you you know criticize this experiment if you can't you know have some sort of um detachment from it and eventually she kind of broke through to him he's like oh geez yeah you're right well i'll cancel it all in the morning and it kind of reminded me of um wasn't in World War One? Didn't they agree to like cease hostilities at some later date? You know, it's like still fighting were still going on and people were still being killed. You know, but we agreed we're gonna stop on some. You know, a few days from now. Yeah, yeah. They, they wanted to stop it at eleven o'clock on eleven eleven because a eleven o'clock on eleven eleven just sounds catchy, right? I mean, yeah, Why the hell yeah. stop now? Exactly. You know, and so he's like, oh, I'll call and cancel it in the morning. Um, you know, and so like that night things just had escalated, you know, the, they'd, they'd had some people who they had released because they were just breaking down. Although like the very first person that got released, they were later like, I think he was faking it. We should catch him again. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like, you have no authority to go and round this person up and bring them back into your basement. But it made sense to them at the time. Um, but yeah, that night after he decided to cancel it the following morning, like the prisoners were, um, you know, forced to simulate sodomy on each other. You know, it's like, all right, you all bend over and you're female camels and you guys are the male camels. And so hump them. Ha ha. Get it. Hump. Um, you know, and this was happening, you know, the, in the next morning, um, he went in and canceled it. And some of the guards were like, Oh, well, that's kind of unfortunate. We thought this was a good study, but most of them were not happy, which is what brought me into this in the first place. You know, it's like most of them were, you know, they were nearly near, nowhere near as unhappy as the guards. But they didn't like what they were doing. I mean, some of them, yeah, took relish in, you know, doing their job to the letter. Uh, in some ways, this seems to superficially contradict some of the things that Milgram did. Um, the proximity of the victim was very, very high. You know, it's like they were all in the same basement together. The proximity to the authority figure who kind of gave them their marching orders wasn't as high, um, you know. There was a warden who was another student um, volunteer for this subject or for the study who was in his own office. And then Zimbardo himself was the quote unquote prison superintendent. And he was in the building and he had video of like the main hall and they had um, audio recording of the prisoner cells and whatnot. So the authority figure was a bit further away. The victims were very close. But one of the key differences here was that they had dehumanized the victims you know it's like instead of milgram study where what did this person do to deserve you know being shocked to death well nothing he showed up here for the same four bucks that i showed up here for as far as i know here they were all playing it's like all right you have done something to deserve being here you are you know less than human and again yeah i was just listening to your christmas trees podcast um this morning and you mentioned things like you know it's like the huns you know the germans are these less than human things that we need to exterminate because they're going to come and you know destroy belgium and whatnot and it's like oh no wait they're not <laughs> you know and it's like that this is you know propaganda this is you know i've been convinced to 
Um, you know, this is not an individual human being with thoughts and feelings and a family and job aspirations, you know, and he, you know, fell and skinned his knee when he's a kid riding a bike just like I did. He's like, no, you are a prisoner number 486 and you will be treated as such, you know, and you will refer to me as Mr. Corrections Officer, you know, meanwhile, I'm wearing a military uniform and wearing mirrored sunglasses, you know, and so there, while there's physical closeness, there's like a separate psychological separation, you know, it's like you and I are not alike which facilitated a great deal of what happened there. In the the depictions, I think there's been at least what two or two or three feature movies and several documentaries made it made about the uh, Sanford prison experiments in, mm-hmm. in these depictions. And in what I've read about these experiments, which is, you know, not, not in huge amount of depth, it kind of seems like what, what happened amongst the guards was that, like you said, a lot of them were not really comfortable with what they were doing, but that there was a small number of guards who I don't know if if they would be considered like sociopaths or sadists or what. But there were there were a small number of guards who like very quickly and eagerly jumped into the role. And then they sort of reluctantly but successfully dragged along the majority of the guards who who weren't that way. Is is that an accurate kind of representation of, of the dynamics among the guards? Um, what Zimbardo described was that there was sort of a, an establishment of pecking order early on amongst the guards. You know, and, and some almost did some seem to try to be outdoing each other or, you know, who is the alpha guard. Um, but he said they broadly kind of divided into three categories. There were the bad guards who, you know, would just, administer, you know, quote unquote punishments, you know, but basically abuse is what it really was for no real reason. Uh, then there were the kind of by the book guards who, yeah, if you crossed them, you were in trouble and, you know, they didn't make life easier for you by any means, but they didn't seem to go out of their way to punish anybody. And then there were the quote unquote good guards who notably never intervened with the bad guards. And sometimes we're noted, you know, it's like, Where's Bob? You know, it's like the bad guards are going batshit on the, you know, the prisoners here. And the good guy has kind of excused himself, you know, that he didn't have the gumption to stop it, but couldn't quite take watching this either. And so the path of least resistance was to go somewhere else. Um, the good guards would like smuggle food in, <laughs> you know, and to, uh, um, which was against the rules. But from my understanding, you know, Zimbardo did a number of like personality inventories, you know, whichever ones existed back in 1971 um, on them in order to kind of establish normalcy amongst everyone. And so there were some variations, but like two of the most abusive guards, like one of the few things that stood out amongst them is that some scale of masculinity um, that he had measured, like one of them, the two worst guards, one of them measured higher than anybody else. And one of them measured lower than anybody else, you know? So it's kind of a weird mixed bag there, but yeah, he, went he he went through a lot of trouble to emphasize that there was nothing to predict you know how these people would respond based on the inventories and testing he did it in advance that's that's really interesting the uh, the, the pattern of the the three groups i had never heard it uh, described that way and what it immediately made me think of is other 
other situations in in real life, you know, that aren't aren't these <laughs> these experimental role playing situations, where you've got a, a hierarchical institution that has at least the potential to to be on one level or another, you know, abusive to the people that are in their charge. And I immediately thought of, well, first, obviously, real life prison guards, you know, and not that mm-hmm. I've ever been in a prison uh, personally, but I've watched a lot of shows about it. And then right. I, I also thought of police departments, right? How, yeah, th- not all not all police officers are the ones that'll, you know, beat a confession out of you with a phone book or <laughs> tase you for right. no reason or whatever. But on the other hand, they sure the, the ones that are decent sure don't seem to very often stop the ones who are who are doing the abusive things. Right. And then I also thought of, uh, of a school, you know, of, of a school itself, how there's, there's, I mean, usually the, the abuse there, other than in extreme cases, usually isn't as over the top, but, but nonetheless, if you think of, um, your experience going to school, and this is probably just as true of most private schools as public schools, other than I suppose, like maybe, I don't know some some really unorthodox private school, but where you'll have you'll have the teachers who are just mean and just almost seem to be looking for and relishing any opportunity to to give someone shit, and then you've got the ones that are not that way, but like you said, they're sort of by the book, you know. And if mm-hmm. if the teachers. Uh, um, you know, guidelines or whatever says, oh, you've got to give this punishment for this offense. They'll do it even if there are uh, mitigating factors where they ought to know that the student really doesn't deserve it. And then you've got the group who are who are the decent teachers who do the best they can in that situation. But on the other hand, they're not always willing and able to, you know, intervene directly against the teachers who are the more abusive Right. But it seems to make a lot of sense with with just sort of personal experience being in those situations in real life. Right. And, uh, and that, that was one of the first things that occurred to me, too, is that you know, amongst uh, you know, our ilk, there are people It's like, why aren't the good cops arresting the bad cops again? Is kind of a recurring question that seems to come up. The school thing hadn't occurred to me, but I'm currently listening to the Harry Potter books on tape with or on tape. That's just how old I am. You know, audio books with my uh, nine year old daughter and yeah, listening like, to the Edison cylinders. Yeah, it's like I, I know I know Snape ends up being a good guy, but he's a real bastard of a good guy. And how come Dumbledore never quite stepped in? It's like no, you can't take fifty points for Gryffindor just because he looked funny at you. You know, and it's like um, yeah, that there's a lot of um, Zimbardo referred it as, as referred to it as the uh, evil of inaction. I think is how he phrased it. Uh, and just kind of letting things happen. Um, and it can get kind of funny how, again, you know, it's like if you, you know, I don't blame one person for the sins of another person. You know, if your job is to stop things like that and you don't, then it becomes an like, why didn't you intervene with this? Um, you know, and I've never been a cop, you know, and so I don't want to, you know, judge too much from, you know, without walking in their moccasins. But it, it's, you know, it's like, to, to pretend that police abuse, you know, or abuse at the hands of police doesn't happen is ridiculous. You have to have your head in the sand, you know, to pretend that doesn't happen. Um, you know, especially with way the news has been going for the last several years, you know, and there's all indications that this is not a new thing, but just the exposure of it is a new thing is my understanding, but it happens and it keeps happening. And I, one, um, one thing that I thought was interesting in the prison experiment was, 
in the first day or two, Zimbardo had the warden tell the prisoners to elect a uh, grievance committee. Uh, and they would come and meet with the warden and or Zimbardo himself as the, you know, prison superintendent, you know, again, this weird mixed role. It's like, I'm in charge of the experiment, but I'm also participating in the experiment. And there was some Milgramian stuff going on there. Like I'm reading his book and I'm like, at some point I can almost hear him telling himself the experiment must go on. It's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do to keep this happening? It's like, maybe you shouldn't, but that they came, you know, and talked to, you know, him as the superintendent and the warden, you know, about their grievances and they never did anything about it and they never committed to doing it. I was like, well, thanks for coming and telling us all these things and we'll look into it. And they went away and the grievance committee went away as if, well, all right, things are going to happen now. And that they never did, you know, but it created this illusion that, Hey, look, we're listening to you. We're going to take you seriously and, you know, throw your requests in the garbage, you know, and, but that got them to play along with the uh, system for a little bit longer. Ah, so it performed a similar function to, let's say, elections, where it's, <laughs> That's right. we're, we're all we're all part of the process, you know. And it's like we've got our representatives in there, and they're making a difference. They are. Uh, if you think they are, that's what matters, I guess. You know, it's you know, this is one of those situations where perception is more important than reality. You know, you're going to receive respond to how you perceive the events, not how they really, really, really are. Yeah, I, I think the whole point that you mentioned earlier about about uh, depersonalization has got to be one of the key things of of this whole experiment because mm-hmm. I mean I I just that that's what resonated with me when I first learned about this experiment because I was probably when I first heard of this it was probably when I was an undergrad and you know, of course I was a history major but I was. I was at a small liberal arts college, so I, I took classes in a variety of subjects, and I took at least at least one or two, you know, basic psychology classes. Mm-hmm. And the Stanford Prison Experiment came up. We might have even watched a documentary about it. I don't recall, but that was something that immediately resonated with me because at the same time I was studying history, and I think at the time I might have even been been covering nazi germany or or you know the soviet union under stalin and 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 covering world war ii and those sorts of things and then immediately that idea of yeah you're depersonalizing someone and Mm -hmm. that makes it so much easier to victimize them and i think that in general part of why why people like you and i that that have the beliefs we do why we're so uncomfortable with, um, you know, violating other people's rights or, or harming people uh, who who are innocent, that sort of thing, is that we we see people as individuals. You know, that mm-hmm. that's kind of how we view the world, and this comes up even when you're told um, if if you've ever been anyone who's ever been told like how do you cope if you are in a hostage hostage situation where you're a hostage right they always tell you you want the hostage taker to see you as an individual person right Um, you want to engage them in conversation and try and humanize yourself and it makes it less likely that they'll hurt you and and it just you know it all kind of comes together when you look at it that once you start to look at each person as as a, a unique individual human being then it becomes you're so much less comfortable with the idea of, oh yeah, you know, uh, 
they they carpet bombed a city yesterday. Well, it's how you got to get things done, right? I mean, right. You look at that and you feel pain. You're like, those were all just people with with uh, with families and and unique personalities, and some of them were better, and and some of them were worse. But probably very few of them deserve that. Yeah, it, it it repeatedly puzzles and frustrates me when people equate an emphasis on individualism with selfishness. You know, it's like. No, because I'm recognizing that you're also an individual, and so is that guy and that guy, you know, and everybody else is too. Whereas if you treat people as a group, you're treating them with the label you've assigned to that group. You know, it's like those people are blank, you know, and then you and they become, you know, homogenized in your mind, you know, and it's like and then it's much easier to deal with them unjustly. You know, it's like, all right, that. Let's say, you know, it's uh, sure. Let's use the M&Ms or Skittles thing. You know, it's like 10% of these people are poison. Great. I'm not going to shoot all of them because 10% of them are poison. You know, it's like, let's find out who the good ones are and the bad ones are. Maybe that's not efficient. And I'm okay with that. You know, it's one of the reasons that, um, you know, it's like there are consequences to treating people as groups, you know, and some, if you treat people as a group, some of those people didn't do something you know, warranting however the treatment is, you know, it's like if you, or, or will suffer consequences. You know, I've mentioned to you, I think before we started recording that I'm not in favor of forced vaccination. Uh, I'm in favor of vaccination in general. I mean, some vaccines I have better, stronger feelings for against than others, you know, but, um, the vaccines have risks, you know, it's like without going into the hypothesized autism thing, it's like there is a measurable risk to giving any vaccine that's out there. And, you know, when on the consent form, it's like up to and including death. It's exceptionally rare, but it happens. If I just say this million kids gets vaccines because it's for the common good, I have now said that some percentage of them are at risk of having some bad outcome. You know, it's like I don't want that. I don't want that responsibility. Each and every individual person deciding if they want it, that's fine. But I'm not going to blanket, you know, that on somebody, on some group of people. And I was spinning off on a tangent again. But, yeah, this is just a recurring thing for me. It's like, how is individualism selfishness? Yeah, well, I think that people who condemn individualism, in a way, they're sort of condemning a straw man of it. They're they're condemning basically a, a sociopathic version of individualism. Right, yeah, that it's it's the person who just wants to en- enrich themselves and and maximize their own pleasure and it's irrelevant what uh, what what has to be done to others to do that right you're right and, yeah it's like I I am in, by no means in favor of an attitude that I am an individual and the rest of you are means to my ends like I'm not in favor of that at all <laughs> yeah because then you're then you're back the to dehumanization of what I'm in favor of. right. Yeah, exactly. whereas w- what we're talking about is a, a form of individualism in which there there's a great deal of empathy for others. Right. That you know. they are humanized. You know, it's um, that they should not have you know something done against them unless they've done something personally to warrant that. I remember puzzling through this when um, you know before you know when I was probably a bomb polished libertarian back right after like nine eleven happened. You know, it's like. Does our military action against another country warrant other people in coming and bombing me? You know, it's like, you know, that, let me put myself in their shoes for a minute. Cause all right, our country's involved, you know, doing involved in various military actions. 
against, you know, and the citizens against the citizens in those countries, you know, it's like, it's always the, you know, the regular old folks that suffer at the hands, you know, because of the decisions of, you know, the politician, the ruling class, you know, and it's like, I don't, you know, it's like, I didn't decide for my country to go out and do this, you know, engage in this military action. Why would I be held responsible for this? Why should I be, you know, bombed for this? That doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I'm all for ferreting out the guilty bastards. Um, but saying, you know, someone has drawn a line against this landmass. Therefore, all of the people within this landmass are equally guilty of whatever some people from that landmass came and did doesn't work for me. You know, it's like, again, find find the individuals and and address them. That's that seems just to me, not punishing the country of origin. Yeah. I mean, it even you can see it in the whole idea of sanctions, right, which sanctions oh, yeah. never harm the elites of the country that is being sanctioned right it's always the poor the vulnerable people with with health problems i mean it's those right. are the people who suffer when you slap sanctions on some country it's it's not the the elite that's running the show they're still doing okay and you know mm-hmm. they'll do whatever it takes to make sure that they they don't suffer very much um that's why sanctions rarely if ever have any success in in causing regime change or what have you, because it's it's hitting people who have nothing to do with what the regime's doing in the first place, and that, that's something that also has uh, colored my my view of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. And I mean, people will say people who are kind of lost in in nationalism will say, well. They deserved it because of Pearl Harbor and because of the way that uh, POWs were treated by the Japanese. And my point is always that, yes, the the POWs who were in the hands of the Japanese were treated horribly. And the Japanese did all sorts of horrific things during World War II in the countries they conquered in Asia. Um, you know, the rape of Nanking just being the most famous example. But the, the people who did that and the people who were behind it, who ordered it, are not the same people that those atomic bombs fell on. <laughs> those atomic right. bombs fell on a bunch of just random civilians who right. happened to be from the same piece of dirt and the same um, you know, ethnic group as the people who did those horrible things. And it's this form of, of collective blame and collective punishment, which then mm-hmm. allows people to be totally cool with, with incinerating tens of thousands of just random civilians. That propaganda there was so exceedingly effective. You know, it's um, when I was in high school, I think so late 80s, early 90s, there was like a Honda plant going into some town in Ohio. And the mayor of the town was having a fit because these are the people that he was, you know, taught, you know, were subhuman, you know, and was, you know, trained to fight against and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he was going to, there's no way he's going to let some, you know, people from Japan set up a auto plant in his, his town. It's like, that was decades ago. <laughs> you know, had some. Yeah, yeah. I've I've got a um, an anecdote on that too. I can't remember if I've ever shared this one on the show or not. But when I was a graduate student, I took a graduate level course on World War II, and kind of a kind of a side note, but the the class was excruciatingly boring. Which it it takes a hell of a bad faculty member to take a class that's a whole semester on World War II, and it's a graduate level class full of students who are into history. That's why they're there, and making it <laughs> just excruciatingly boring. But somehow this guy did. But every now and then he would say something brilliant. You know, a, a stop clock is right twice a day, 
and this uh, we we were talking about the the amount of dehumanization that happened in the Pacific theater of the war. And we were reading stuff by uh, John Dower, who don't recall if he's still alive or not, but he was for a long time a professor at MIT history professor whose work was all about the dehumanization in the Pacific during world war two. And um, this professor who, who was Jewish pointed out, he shared an anecdote that illustrated how, how strong the feeling against the Japanese was that was inculcated in people. And he says, look, I know plenty of World War II veterans who to this day won't own a Toyota or a Honda mm-hmm. to this day. Meanwhile, when I go to synagogue and I look around at the parking lot there, I see a heck of a lot of BMWs and Mercedes. <laughs> and, and just think right. about that. That means that the – the resentment of World War II veterans against the Japanese is stronger than the the resentment and residual anger of of many Jews towards Germany. They're totally fine buying German cars now. Right. Um, I mean, that's that's obviously saying something. But any, anyway, we've we've gotten off on tangents. Uh, I, th- I think they're they're good tangents. But um, bringing it back around to to the Stanford Prison Experiment, which I think is a great microcosm that illustrates a lot of these tendencies that we later see. Um, acted out on a grand scale in in places like World War II, but um, were there any significant variations of this experiment done either by Zimbardo or anyone else that uh, illustrated any you know other aspects of it uh, that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of, and I and I admittedly haven't looked a whole lot. I'm still looking through kind of the source material that Zimbardo has written. Um, you know, I, I mean he canceled it early and I suspect that because of what happened there that no one's been willing to touch it with a 10 foot pole, um, in any sort of meaningful way. I mean, people may have done some things with some superficial variations, but you know, it's, um, the amount of oversight that would need to be present. And yeah, you know, I, I, the short answer is no, I'm not aware of anyone ever replicating anything very similar to this. Yeah. yeah it so it would seem like, uh, like I think you said earlier that they've tightened down some of the the rules and laws and things regarding right. regarding these sorts of experiments. It would seem like it would be a very tough thing to replicate now without getting yourself into some serious trouble. Right. That you, you would need to build so many safeguards in it that you'd almost be short circuiting the role playing aspect of it. You know, that that the role play would need to be so thin that I don't know if any results would be meaningful. Yeah, and on, actually, a, on a certain level, oh. I, I look at it and I'm like, and, and I guess this shows me turning into the the voyeur of the experiment. I look at it and I go, that's too bad there weren't some other variations of this so that we could learn, you know, more angles of it. Right. Yeah, that was kind of something I thought too when I was reading it because it was so different from reading Milgram's work because Milgram's work was very kind of laid out, methodical and quantitative, and and we did this. And then we did this one and then we did this one. And this was more just kind of a, you know, it, 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 it was almost written to kind of in a novelized fashion. It's like, you know, telling the story of it, uh, which kind of annoyed me, you know, in sometimes the timeline is a little mixed up, but yeah, it's like, so wait a minute, what would have happened if this had been different? And I also wonder, you know, it's like these guys were role playing and, what was their impression of their role? You know, it's like, where did they get the idea for what their role is supposed to be? Um, you know, because 
the prisoners would like started talking amongst themselves about escape, like right off the bat, you know, and it's like, you know, none of these guys had spent time in prison. How much of their role playing was based on movies they've seen about what it's like in prison, you know, which prison movies escape is right up there. Abuse by guards is right up there, you know, and I don't know how this compares to what was going on in prisons then or now. And I'm not saying, hey, prison's not as bad as this made it look, you know, but it's like the the role playing, you know, when you're taking on a role, you're not somehow magically imbued with what this role really is. Again, it's perception versus reality thing. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I've seen Shawshank Redemption. You want me to play the prison guard? Got it. You know, it's like I'm going to tuck a guy off a roof. Right. So. Keeping that in mind was something that I kind of did through the entire thing. Because they mentioned Cool Hand Luke like umpteen times. Yeah, well, that was the biggest prison movie that they they would have had back then. So that makes perfect sense. This is another one where, you know, obviously there's the ethical problems and the legal problems. But um, another one where if there was a way to do it without actually harming anybody, I would be very curious to see if there were any differences across cultural lines right that oh mm-hmm. are are people from different backgrounds and and different cultures are they more or less prone to behave one way or another either as prisoners or as guards because right. I, I think one of the most interesting things about this experiment is that it kind of deals with both sides it deals with with the power uh the power side and the obedience side Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas Milgram's really only just dealing with obedience because the person in power is obviously part of running the experiment. All right. One thing I saw, you know, and again, kind of this is a somewhat contrary to Milgram stuff was the warden and the you know prison superintendent were sometimes seen at odds with the you know the people who are playing the guards. Um, like the guards threatened to cancel visitation at one point, you know, and Zimbardi is up and it's like, you know, they're, so one guy was on his uh, hunger strike, which the guards were having a fit about uh, because they said it violated uh, rule number two. Prisoners must eat at mealtimes and only at mealtimes, uh, which is kind of a cautionary tale about how rules may seem good, but then maybe you know, misinterpreted, you know, so the point of the rule was that, you know, we're going to feed you and send to feed you and we're not going to feed you other times. So don't expect us to, they took that must thing. It's like, so one guy went on hunger strike. It's like, no, it says here, you must eat at mealtimes. And so if you're not eating at mealtimes, we're going to throw you in the hole. And he's like, fine, throw me in the hole. He was, you know, kind of doing his very stoic. It, it was weird. He was the guy who was added in the middle of the experiment. They'd had a couple of guys, you know, who they pulled out. It's like, all right, you're not doing well. We're going to get you out. We're kind of short on prisoners let's get some we know one of our backup guys who volunteered for the study and put him in there and like within 24 hours in there he's like i gotta get out but again he had this weird i'm gonna get out but in the context of this being in prison you know he's like i'll starve myself until i pass out and then they'll have to take me out of here and get me medical attention was kind of his strategy instead of wait a minute this ain't what you promised time out i'm not prisoner 416 my name is bob and i'm leaving you know screw you guys i'm going home didn't do that didn't understand that he could, uh, you know, and so went on his hunger strike. And this challenged the guard's authority, just made him berserk. And you're breaking this rule, threw him in the hole. That didn't get the results they wanted. And so there's a perception they had that we're in control. If we're not getting the results we want, then we need to ramp up the control. Um, and so they started punishing the other prisoners. You know, it's like until you 
convince him, you know, we can't convince him to eat. You convince him to eat and we're going to cancel your visitation. We're not going to let your, you know, girlfriends and parents and what come and visit you. And that just, yeah, they didn't like that at all. I and mean, they were pounding on the closet door. We know he's stuck in this closet with the echoing and everything and yelling at him, but he couldn't snap out of it. He couldn't say, wait a minute, I'm done. And they were punishing people arbitrarily and they blamed him. You know, they're, afterwards they're like, we don't know why we blamed him. You know, it's like the guards told us he was responsible for us representation being canceled, but the guards were the people canceling it. You know, there was this puppet show thing. It's like, no one look at the man behind the curtain. That guy's the bad guy. But eventually the, the Zimbardo or the warden stepped in. It's like, no, you can't actually cancel visitation for these people who haven't broken the rules. You need to let the visitors come in. And the guards kind of resented that, you know, so it was, that's how it's kind of contrary to Milgram to get around to what I started saying is, you know, it's not the authority figure saying you must punish this person even though you don't want to, it was, whoa, you're going overboard. And they didn't like that. You know, it's like, you're undermining our authority, you know, and it's like, you know, authority corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And their power is being undermined and they didn't like it. You know, their role on paper was that they were subservient to the warden, but they had a goal in mind, you know, and their goal was being thwarted and they resented that their goal was to, you know, maintain law and order in the prison and the law was being broken. And so they had to, you know, take whatever steps they thought were necessary. And this is something, you know, even minor goals can kind of take on their life of their own, you know, and again, you know, it's like the experiment must go on. It's like, I'm trying to get this done and I'm being thwarted and now I'm getting frustrated, but wait a minute, maybe I should step, take a step back. When I'm trying to get ready for work and get my kids ready for school in the morning, if they start screwing around, I get mad. <laughs> you know, it's like they are thwarting my goal. My goal is to get us to, you know, get you to the bus on time and then for me to get to work on time. Oh, wait a minute. The, the goal is kind of taken on the life of its own. And I'm treating this as, a, you know, it's like, is this worth me being a dick to my kids? You know, it's like, OK, no, I would really prefer to get out of here on time so you can get on the bus and I can get to work. That would be, that. yeah, there's nothing wrong with preferring that. But if it doesn't happen, I should really roll with it. You know, it's, um, you know, it's my goal to, you know, be a reasonable, benevolent parent should really be a bigger goal in my mind than getting to work on time. That's, let's, um, now if I need to get work on time or else I might lose my job and we'll all be on the street. I got to prioritize accordingly. You know, but that's not a reality in my life. You know, it's like if I get to work a little late, it's going to work out okay. My my day will be a little convenient, but I can make up for it. But I've got that goal in my head, and they had that goal in their head. We need to establish, maintain law and order amongst, you know, these prisoners who don't even have names. They have numbers. And they acted accordingly. And so even though – that was my phone, sorry. Um, it's a droid. It should sound like one, right? Uh, yeah, so like Exactly. Uh, so – even though the big authority figure was like, whoa, slow down, they had their mission, you know, and nice guy, soft boss is interfering with the mission. Um, so they would even subvert things that he had told them. You know, it's like that at one point the guards were going to, it's like, all right, if you don't behave, we're not going to feed you. And they're like, no, you actually need to let them have their meals. And so there was some sort of disagreement going on between the guards and the prisoners one day. It's like, the warden said we have to feed you. We must allow you to have a meal. You've had three bites. You've had part of a meal. That counts. We can take away the rest of your food. You know, and so they're looking for loopholes. You know, and so I'm following the letter of the law, boss, but the spirit of the law, no, that I don't even acknowledge that exists. Um, because they're trying to accomplish this mission they've got in their head. Yeah, and a lot of it's simply about about winning and about maintaining dominance and all that. I mean, 
I can also identify with having a couple of kids of my own, that situation where you're losing your mind because they're screwing around when they're supposed to be getting ready or doing something. And, you know, the same thing. I mean, the, the immediate emotional reaction is, is to get angry. And at least part of it is not even just because, oh, this might cause us to be late to something and that'll have negative consequences. I mean, that that's part of it. But part of it is, is also simply like, I'm the boss, right? I mean, that's, right. that's just sort of, sort of the instinct. Like I'm, I'm taller and older than you. And I said, <laughs> we've got to get ready and you're not. So at a, at a certain point, it, it turns into like your, your monkey brain or your lizard brain or whatever is perceiving it as you are disrespecting my dominance here. <laughs> No. You, yeah, you, you're violating my should rule in my head. You know, it's like I believe you should do this, and then you don't. And but you should, and you didn't. And then the yeah, anger is often the result of that. Uh, which, geez, which I see political bickering on Facebook every day. I don't even want to think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we all know, anger ultimately leads to the dark side. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, was was there anything else? Um, that, that you had to share on Stanford prison experiments uh, on, on yeah, kind of lessons no. we can draw from it or. I think we got you know, a, a decent amount out of that. So then the last one I wanted to ask you about was probably, it's probably a slightly less notorious and well-known experiment than the other two. And it's one I only have found about, I only found out about a few years ago, but it's the so-called ash conformity experiments. So mm-hmm. what can you tell us about this one? Uh, so, yeah, Solomon Ash was another social psychologist. He was actually one of Milgram's professors, uh, and he did some experiments back in the early 50s. Um, and there are some YouTube videos, but apparently the YouTube videos are recreations or dramatizations because the students are clearly not from the 50s in the YouTube videos that I've seen. There might be some older genuine videos that I haven't found. Um, but he had people come in. And again, he had a group of people and only one of them was the actual, you know, test subject. The rest were all plants that were working for him. And the people thought they were there for a test of perceptual acuity, you know, um, or something along those lines, which I think was a bit of a artifact that they were kind of having. It's almost a suggestion that we're testing your perception. It's like, oh, so my perception is something needs to be tested. There may be flaws in my perception, but he would have a group of people, you know, they would show a line, you know, here's this line. And then they would show three lines somewhere off to the side of that, you know, on an old slide projector, probably. One was clearly shorter, one was clearly longer, and one was about the same, where one was the same length as the initial line they were shown. And then they were asked, you know, which of these lines matches the first one, A, B, or C? And even though they had that kind of, like I said, the suggestion that perception may be an issue, if they tested people in isolation on this, they had like a less than 1% error rate. Um, but if they introduced some, you know, like the people who were um, working for the experimenter, they would have them answer incorrectly some of the time, not all the time, as that may have tripped them up. Um, and they would answer kind of in unison. It's like, oh, yeah, B, when it was clearly C, that was the right line. And on average, the general, you know, and, and then what they would find is that the person who was the actual test subject, he was always the last one to answer. They would kind of answer in line. It's like B, 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 B. And then he's sitting there and it's like, thinking C is clearly the right one, but they all said B, what do I do? And 32% of the time, the person would conform with the clearly wrong answer. 75% of people who are studied would conform at least once. 
Uh, and I kind of wonder what the trend there was, where they like initially it's like, what are they talking about? But then like as the they did more and more of these lines, just kind of was it wearing on them to kind of you know buck the trend and swim upstream. Um, but seventy five percent of people would conform at least once. Five um, percent of the people studied conformed every single time. That whenever they all said the wrong answer, they said it too. Twenty five percent again. If seventy five percent conformed at least once then 25% never ever did. And you know, I was like, you all gave the wrong answer. I'm saying C, I know it's C, whatever. The conformity effect kind of peaked with three peers giving the wrong answer. Like he started, you know, if you, again, if the person was there by themselves, the error rate was less than 1%. If they had one peer, then the average conformity rate was like 3% for giving the wrong answer. If they had two peers giving wrong answers, then it went up to 13. And then if they had three or more, it went up to 32, but that kind of peaked, it plateaued at that point. Interesting quirks in that experiment or variations he did, if one person in line gave the correct answer, all of a sudden conformity fell off again. It's like, I think it's C, they said B, they said B, they said B. That guy said C too. Whew, okay, good. C. Yeah. Um, so even though the majority was giving one answer, if one other person gave the correct answer, it took the pressure off and they could give the right correct answer. Um, now if that person got removed, all of a sudden the conformity went back up to like the baseline 32%. And I don't know what context that was, you know, it's like, uh Oh, they took him not to shoot him behind the chemical shed for giving the wrong answer. Okay. I don't know <laughs> what was going on in the mind of the subject there. Um, in general from like post, uh, experiment, um, interviews, I gather there were kind of two, one of two phenomenons going on in the person who was being studied, either they had distorted judgment that, oh, I think it's C, but they all said B. Maybe it is B. Okay. And they believed it. Um, and then some other group of other people, it's like, I know it's B and they said C, but uh, I'll just play along, you know, so I don't believe this in my heart of hearts, but I'm not bucking the trend or, you know, um, I'm not willing to upset the apple cart. So I'm just going to try to fit in here. That's a, that's a very interesting distinction. I, I just uh, that that some people actually seem to have altered their own perception mm -hmm. to conform, and other people seem to have known it was BS, but then mm -hmm. been like, "Well, it'll just be easier if I go along with it, even though I know it's not true." I mean that that to me is so profound because looking out at just sort of people out there. I wonder how many of them who go along with things like nationalism and other belief systems that, that you right. and I at least would find problematic and dangerous, how many of them are the true believers and how many of right. them are, well, I kind of on some level suspect this is bullshit, but uh, eh, go along to get along. Yeah, he one of the other variations he did, which I think probably – differentiated between those people was that they would you know, the person would show up on time but they pretended they arranged it to make it look like he was late and like oh we're audio recording this so yeah come in and sit down but we can't have you say your answer in sequence with these other people because when we go and analyze the audio tape it's going to mess it up because we've had five answers and now we have six and it's going to confuse people so you just write your answers down and we'll put it into the, you know, we'll do the math with it after the study's all over. And conformity dropped. It didn't like drop back down to the 1%. So probably what was going on there was the people who were like, I'm not certain of what I'm seeing. And if they all see it, then I must be wrong. So I'll go along with that. Those people 
still answered, you know, along with the group, but the people who were, I need to fit in, it's like, they don't know what I'm saying. You know, they, they had some anonymity. They weren't going to be judged for, you know, bucking the trend. And so, whew, all right, screw you guys, you're all wrong. This was apparently reproduced in the early 80s, um, and it completely disagreed with everything that Ash did. Uh, I don't know. Ash used um, college students. I don't know what majors they were following, but when they redid it in the 80s, they were used engineering, math, and chemistry students, which is like, all right, these are people who, by their very nature and training, are very into making precise measurements. So that might explain why they (laughs) were kind of you know, immune to the conformity um, response, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Plus it was hypothesized that it's like, Oh, the fifties were a time of great conformity in the eighties. We're not like in retrospect. I'm I'm not sure the eighties were so not, (laughs) we're known for their nonconformity, but yeah, it's like, yeah. If an engineering student isn't able to say, yeah, that line's short on the other one. And I don't care what those other guys say is that that engineering student hopefully doesn't complete his degree. Yeah, it seems like within academia that the um, the kind of hard sciences, you know, and, and engineering, the whole STEM thing, right? That yeah. they're at, at least when they're dealing with something that's at least somewhat within their wheelhouse, that they're more objective. Not not that they're not that they're perfectly objective. I'm not one of these, you know believers of science as a religion like i think the scientific method is great but then humans apply it imperfectly but that people in the stem fields might be just kind of more used to taking a taking a very hard stand based on what the evidence says (laughs) whereas in other in other academic disciplines it becomes more fuzzy because you don't have the same degree of possibility of objective measurement and so on right Another thing they did is if the lines, if the difference between the lines was more ambiguous, then conformity shut up, which is not surprising. And that's something I actually wanted to kind of um, tie in with the other two series of experiments, too, is like all of these things take people out of their comfort zone. You're at a weird lab at Yale, and this is not, you know, this is not your bread and butter. This is different. And you you know, versus the prison experiment where it's like, all right, none of these people have been in prison before. They don't know what to know or expect versus this other thing. As the lines get more ambiguous, it's like, I'm not sure what's right. Oh, the group says what's right. You know, given that we're social critters, this trend makes a lot of sense to me that if you as a human being don't know what to do, and this is all situations very unusual and your ground rules don't really seem to apply, what's everyone else doing? Okay. You know, that that kind of becomes a default, you know, almost from an evolutionary standpoint, it seems. You know, it's like if I, you know, the analogy I came up with was that, you know, if I wake up suddenly in a strange building that I don't recognize and there's fire around me and there's a firefighter shouting for me to go in a particular direction, I'm going to do what he says. You know, it's like I'm not going to try and figure things out. (laughs) I'm going to do what he says. If I wake up in my house and there's a fire by the back door and there's no fire by the front door. And there's a firefighter shouting for me to go through the back door. Screw that guy. (laughs) It's like, this is my house. I can see where the fire is. I know what to do. You know, the situation's familiar. There's no ambiguity here. The authority figure's got nothing on me. I don't care about his fancy jacket and red hat and you know, whatnot. I'm going that way. But if I don't know what to do, we start looking for cues, what to do. And those cues may not be good. (laughs) It's, um, but it's, you know, put in that perspective, 
some of these things, you know, results from these experiments, it's like, oh, that, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. It's not as ominous, you know, some people have tried to take the, some of these things, um, you know, and say, this proves that we're all evil and are, you know, heart of hearts, you know, and it's like, um, you know, the people that Milgram study weren't happy about what they're doing, you know, the guards and some, you know, the Stanford prison experiment, I mean, some of them really went about their job with relish, but, you know, it's like a lot of them reported, you know, some unhappiness about what they were doing. Um, you know, it's, but they thought they were doing the right thing. Um, they were wrong, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. you act, you do what you think is right. And they did. Yeah, that's interesting. The whole point about being out of out of one's comfort zone. I I had never thought of that, and I'm I'm probably guilty of of being you know too too downbeat on the the takeaways of some of these experiments. But um, it it did make me make me think of how much sort of institutions of power that are trying to get trying to get dominance over people will rely on taking you out of your comfort zone. And I think of things like, like cults or mm-hmm. perhaps um, boot camp or something like that, where part of the experience is you're being jarringly yanked out of your world into this right. alien environment. And part of what then would make you more susceptible than normal to, to authority is that you're in an uncomfortable sort of a situation you know i i never really thought of of just the power of of that alone of being kind of outside of your normal your normal comfort zone right yeah uh somewhere along the way uh zimbardo got some material out of like you know the police interrogation handbook if such a singular thing exists you know it's like never interrogate someone in their home <laughs> you know it's like was one of the ground rules you know it's like always bring them you know get them off of their home turf you know it's like all of a sudden they're on your turf, not theirs. They don't have, you know, support there, you know, to rely on, you know, and there's not anyone interrupting. You have the control of the situation and makes a lot of sense in that context. Um, yeah. I, th- I think I remember hearing somewhere that, and I don't know how universal this is or how current this is, but I think I remember hearing somewhere that it's very common for uh, police departments and whatnot to deliberately make, their interrogation rooms as on i mean the old cliche is like putting hot lights on someone or whatever but even aside from that just to make it kind of dingy and not a nice place and uncomfortable seats and Mm -hmm. you know the the whole thing is kind of a, a whole staged situation designed to to make you confess Mm-hmm. And just simply to to say what you think needs to be said, it's like a very almost like a very super mild form of torture, you know. Even if mm-hmm. even if the cops aren't beating you with a phone book or whatever, to just right. make you so uncomfortable that you'll kind of be more susceptible to agreeing to stuff, whether you really mean it or really did the bad thing or or not. And even to take just a a history example that seems kind of un- unconnected, but I think it psychologically is on the same playing field. Lyndon Johnson was notorious for having discussions with people when he was president where he would put them into horribly uncomfortable situations like he would invite congressmen over to talk about some bill and President Johnson would be taking a shit. And so 
here's the president <laughs> dropping a deuce and you're, you know, congressman and you're brought in and like, there he is doing his thing right there. And he's right. telling you like, oh, I really want you to support this bill or whatever. <laughs> and they would just be like, yeah, sure. I'll vote for it. Whatever. You know, it, yeah. it, it, part of it's just, I want to get out of this horribly uncomfortable situation. Right. What can I do to facilitate my escape? That's yeah. yeah. I mean, just, just think about how awkward that would be. Here's the president talking to you on the john. But anyway, that that, that, makes that was before everyone had a little cell phone with a camera in their pocket. That has to have. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you've got to wonder what all people used to get away with that they never could today. How many presidents have done just the most bizarre shit that we never hear about um, that, you know, today they'd, they'd be busted in a heartbeat. I mean, the stories that have come out about Lyndon Johnson, and some of them are substantiated and some of them aren't, but he seems to have been one of our most just deeply disturbed sort of presidents out of, out of that whole rogues gallery. But anyway, um, <laughs> back to the to the the Ash conformity experiments. So were, th- were there any other significant variations that, that showed different, you know, angles on this that, that uh, you're aware of? Um, just the, uh, I, I know there's more out there that I'm not familiar with, but the only thing I'm familiar with was uh, Milgram repeated some of it in Europe. And yeah, that I, I believe it was Norway with some Northern European country scored higher on um, conformity uh, compared to France. Um, which he kind of attributed to some you know, sociological norms that were there. And you know, it's like, apparently it's very typical for the French to bitterly argue with each other at cafes. <laughs> it was, was like one thing he mentioned and, and not so much in Northern Europe. Um, and, and it wasn't like night and day differences, but there was a, there was a statistically significant difference there. Yeah. I think in general, the, the kind of stereotype is that the Scandinavians in particular tend to, as a, as a group, be more um, kind of uh, cohesive and homogenous. And right, uh, right. Is, is the stereotype I, I have never been. So. Yeah, which is which is some of the explanation given by some libertarians for why the the big generous welfare state works relatively better there than it does in many other countries is. Well, they have more of a culture where they they're less likely to abuse the system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I've got a colleague who's a political scientist whose office is next to mine at work, and he's told me, um, "Have you ever heard of the Laffer curve in regard to taxes?" I've heard those words put together, but I, I don't know what that means. Okay. Well, the the Laffer curve was a uh, thing put out there in like the late 70s or early 80s by an economist who at least for a while worked for the Reagan administration named Art Laffer who's considered one of like the the intellectual godfathers of supply side economics and he came up with this model that showed that if you cut taxes then the um the the government revenues actually will start to go up because people will um you know they'll they'll engage in more economic activity the economy will grow more and so the government will be getting a smaller slice but of a larger pie so to speak so they'll actually get okay. more revenue and um the guy with the office next door to mine who teaches political science was talking to me about this the other day or maybe a year ago or whatever i forget and he was saying that there's a point of diminishing returns on the laffer curve where if you jack taxes up 
for a while you'll get more revenue and then eventually you reach a point where you get diminishing returns. You actually get less revenue because people are just not doing as much business. They're trying harder to dodge taxes because it's they're more incentivized mm-hmm. to if the tax rates are higher. And what he told me that I thought was very interesting was he said there's a cultural variance too. Not all cultures have the Laffer curve at the same point. So in other words, some cultures are more willing to put out put up with a higher amount of taxation and yet still keep complying with it and still keep growing their business and what have you. And he said that the Scandinavians actually were one of the groups that uh, will continue to grow their business and will continue to comply with taxes and so on at a higher rate than than uh. Americans, for example. So I, I just thought that was interesting because a lot of times people, when they're trying to sell you on a particular system or whatever, <laughs> they won't take cultural differences into account. And so they'll say, well, you know, this program that works great in Sweden or works great in, I don't know, Japan or whatever, we should just replicate that program here. And even right. setting aside my anarchism and saying, okay, even within the status paradigm, if we're simply measuring it on a pragmatic basis, what's the best program or policy? You can't just assume that something that works or seems to work relatively well in Japan or Scandinavia is going to work exactly the same in uh, in the United States with very different culture and demographics and whatever. And, so that, that's part of why I keep uh, bringing up, you know, with these experiments, are there any any differences across culture? Because I think that's something that um, a lot of times people people sort of forget to think about. You know, we're not all mm-hmm. Americans. Right, right. I, I remember hearing somewhere that there are actually differences in rates of uh, psychopathy and sociopathy from different ethnic and, and cultural groups to the next – I can't remember. I think they said that in some study that that there were lower rates of psychopathy and sociopathy among Asians, actually, than among other groups, which, you know, I I don't I don't have it at my fingertips here to refer to. But anyway, it's just something I I always wonder about, you know, when you have these experiments that are only conducted in the United States or only conducted in in Western cultures or what have you is would it be universal? Because I'm always trying to figure out the difference between the things that are idiosyncratic to certain cultures and then the things that are just endemic to humans, you know. Mm hmm. So anyway, yeah, the the on the Ash Conformity experiments, and I guess this also came into play in the Milgram experiments, I think a really important takeaway is that people are less submissive and less conformist when they've got one or more allies on their side. Right. I, I think that, that's something with a lot of a lot of potential power to it, that insight. Yeah, that, you know, having that first person say i am spartacus or whatever you know it's uh gives some people may just not have even considered that was an option you know it's like i can opt out it's like shoot i'd have done that ages ago if i had known a cup opt out you know it's um you know that yeah you are not alone you know is a very powerful message you know we are you know, it's it, it's a mixed bag, all of this stuff, because we are social creatures. And so we are, to a degree, susceptible to some of these, you know, social stimuli. But then that can be, you know, used as a force for good, too, to be a little cliche about it. You know, it's that no, yeah, knowing you are not alone can be a very, very powerful, you know, supportive thing. 
And so, you know, I've heard, I've heard people talk about how, you know, it's, you know, the, the internet is great because you get to meet people you'd never know. And the internet is horrible because you're forced to encounter people you would never know, you know, but how many people, you know, with our sort of mindset would be, you know, in the fifties or, you know, the only options were, you know, newspapers and magazines and expensive telephone with expensive long distance would never know each other existed. And it's um, just the communication aspect is, you know, so reinforcing, I think, for people who are like, yeah, we don't need to put up with this. You know, we can look at other options. We can look at opting out, you know, and what would that look like and how will we make that happen are the next questions that, you know, I don't know if anyone has perfect answers for, but, you know, it's like there are people who are interested at least in opting out of some of the systems we have in place. And I think that's a good thing and they're able to support each other. And I think that's a very good thing. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's why... You, when you hear people talk about their first experience going to a thing like Porkfest or a thing like uh, the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, is very often you'll hear someone who's never been to an event or been around a, a large group that's like them in that regard. It's this kind of energizing, refreshing sort of a feeling. They're like, oh. wow, you know, I was around yeah. a whole bunch of people that are the same sort of crazy that I am. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, <laughs> Echo chambers are bad, but having reinforcing supportive people is good, you know, and so there's a happy medium there somewhere. And yeah, I, I've only been to two pork fests this year and then two years ago. But yeah, the first time I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> these are my people. This is awesome. <laughs> and um, it, it must be like back in the day what a what a Trekkie felt like when he went to his first Star Trek convention. <laughs> <you know? laughs> that I, I think you've nailed the analogy there perfectly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I need to hide this at work and amongst my family, but now I can just kind of let it all hang out. <laughs> exactly. You can just sort of be yourself flamboyantly. And yeah, I, I can come out of the anarchy closet. This is great. <laughs> Are there any other major psychological experiments besides those kind of big three that you know of that illustrate something to do with power or something to do with obedience that are uh, significantly different? There, there are two other things that I'd like to kind of at least briefly go over. Um, there's something called the bystander effect, or which has also been referred to as the um, Kitty Genovese effect, that she was a woman in, uh, I forget which part of New York City, but part of New York City who was murdered in 1964. Uh, and there were a number of people who, at least to some degree, witnessed or were aware of it, that it was not a quick and easy murder, like she was attacked and stabbed. She screamed, the attacker fled, and she was wounded and couldn't get inside. And he came back sometime later after she'd been bleeding on the street and, you know, finished her off. And and it's been – and it was a really big thing in the news, you know, and this is kind of the – now become the stereotype of, of the, you know, indifferent, you know, big city person who will, you know, walk by someone getting mugged in an alleyway and not care about um, – but, you know, some other social psychologists uh, have, you know, studied this and, you know, like set up an experiment where a woman would be crying for help. And if a person was by themselves, like 70 percent of the subjects, if by themselves went to go find out what was going on and went to go help this woman who was in distress, if they were in a group, then the number of people who were willing to go and, you know, investigate or help dropped down like 40 percent. Um how, you know, this is explained, you know, is you know, up in the air. Uh, a lot of it, oh, excuse me, is thought to be degree of responsibility, you know, and um, again, Milgram did some 
experiments along these lines, you know, testing this, you know, I think I mentioned before that, you know, uh, uh, someone, a child is in need of help in a small town. They're more likely to get any random stranger to help them than a child in a big city. And there's just this, you know, it's not my job sort of attitude. You know, the more people there are around, the more likely you're able to rationalize. It's like, well, why isn't someone else doing this? I don't need to do this. And also the degree of specialization. It's like, that's what we have police for, or that's what we have, you know, firefighters for or EMS for or whatever. Um, so if you're able to, you know, rationalize that, then you're able to, you know, suppress your, you know, human, <laughs> I think, you know, desire to be helpful to others. Um, there's some overlap with conformity there that, uh, people were more likely to help if they perceived the victim as being similar to them. Like they did some things with like football jerseys, you know, I don't know how they plan this in advance, but you know, if oh, that, that person's in distress, Oh, Hey, and they like my team, you know, they, <laughs> or even if it wasn't the same team, but it's like, Oh, Hey, and they're a football fan. And I am too. Um, you know, so I don't know if they arranged for like, you know, a Trekkie to be in distress while a jock was the, you know, helper, you know, and they just, like, I'm not going to help that freak. But, you know, it's a willingness to help others has some, you know, are they in my in-group or out-group, you know, as opposed to kind of a diffuse cosmopolitan, hey, we're all humans sort of attitude. But then also, if people are in a group, the group cohesion matters that people who are in a group of friends who know each other, and then there's someone who's in distress you're like, let's go help. Yeah, let's go help. And they do versus if you're amongst a group of strangers, all of a sudden it's like, what do we do? You know, and again, there's that, you know, you're not in your comfort zone and things start getting ambiguous and people start not knowing how to respond. And if you ask them in a, you know, benign, you know, it's like sitting down and interviewing them at their home. What would you do if you were in a random situation and there someone started crying for help? It's like, oh, I'd go help. But you put them there and all of a sudden it's like, oh, what do I do? You know, and. So that, that I thought was um, kind of interesting, has some overlap with some of the things we talked about. Uh, and again, I think being that first person makes a difference, you know, that it, even if no one else follows you, you know, doing the right thing is doing the right thing. You know, it's like, you know, if, it, if there's any message, take home message I want to deliver from this entire thing, it's like, screw what everyone else is doing, do the right thing. <laughs> um would like for my take home message to be. Yeah. And besides uh, that, if you do the right thing, these experiments show there's a decent chance that other people will actually do the right thing too. Once someone else has. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, it's like, I'd like to see, and I've looked into this very little. And so I don't know, you know what happens if again, there's a plant there and the plant says, Hey, let's go help. You know, does that, you know, set, you know, does that set off the avalanche of people going, Oh yeah, it's obviously what we should do. And you know, do they all kind of follow suit then? Versus are they all waiting for that first person and no one's quite doing it? It's like, I, great, be the first person. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, uh, I, I think I once saw like a candid camera sort of a show, obviously not a, a scientific uh, experiment and everything, but but a candid camera show where they were testing this very thing where they were having someone pretend to be uh, in trouble or, you know, they had a, a woman who was being threatened physically by her larger supposed boyfriend or whatever and it was all it was all plants oh and, and yeah then, um and then having passers-by react to it and i think at some point they did have another plant who was walking by who then sort of you know took a stand and was like oh i'm gonna do something and then when they did all of a sudden every other random passerby uh, suddenly got involved and helped too. So oh, really? there is, there is kind of a bandwagon effect. It, it can work mm -hmm. as a positive force multiplier. 
um, so yeah, I, I wanted to mention that. And then there was another thing that, um, that uh, Zimbardo had written about that there was a third grade school teacher in Iowa, um, Riceville, Iowa. Her name was Jane Elliott back in 68 that she kind of, um, again, it's, uh, doing un, um, approved research on third grade children, which she got some grief for. But, uh, this was like right after, uh, MLK was assassinated, I believe. And she kind of went into her, you know, rural Iowan class of all, you know, little white kids who maybe have not even encountered a black person before. And we talking about discrimination and she kind of got this gist that they were, you know, academically got it, but didn't get it, get it. And so she arranged for this thing. It's like, well, would you all like to experience what maybe discrimination is like? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And so she organized the thing. She came in one day. And it's like, all right, blue-eyed people, it turns out, are superior. And brown-eyed people, not so much. So all the brown-eyed people, you need to wear this little brown soft fabric collar so that we can tell who you are from across the room without coming and looking at your eyes real close. And then she gave perks to the blue eyed kids. They got a little bit of extra lunch. They got to spend time on the new jungle gym. They got five minutes extra recess. They all sat in the front of the class and the brown eyed kids sat in the back of the cat class. And she encouraged the, you know, it's like, you know, birds of a feather flock together. You blue eyed kids play with yourselves and you brown eyed kids, you, you know, you go over there. Um, they, they had segregated water fountains and they segregated them according to eye color. Um, and she was a little more harsh with the brown-eyed kids when they would say, you know, speak up or misbehave in class or whatever. Um, initially, the brown-eyed kids were like, wait a minute, we don't like this. And then she gave the whole, you know, some bullshit biological reason. It's like, look, you know, the eye pigment, you know, soaks into your brain and makes you not quite as bright or something. I don't know what, you know, some sort of bullshit biological reason. And they bought it and their resistance kind of fell. And the blue-eyed kids became arrogant jerks and were bossing the brown-eyed kids around. And they started doing better academically. You know, that they started doing – like kids who were not that good at math actually did a little bit better at math. They, they had – you know, I'm a smarter, you know, better kid. And their performance um, – you know, it's, it's kind of a good and bad thing. It's like they became jerks, but their performance improved in some ways. The next day, she's like, you know what? I read the wrong thing. Wrong. Brown eyed kids, give your calls to the blue eyed kids. Actually, brown eyed kids, the pigment sinks in your brain and it's like, you know, brain medicine, you know, so you're all smarter. And the behaviors flip flopped. Not a hundred percent. And this is one of those things that I haven't looked at in a great amount of detail, like the actual data. And again, I'm not sure how diligent she recorded the data. She was a third grade school teacher in, uh, you know, rural Iowa in 1968. But, um, cause, some people describe it as, and then the brown-eyed kids were just as bad to the blue-eyed kids, which in some ways isn't surprising because, like, ah, the table's turned now, you arrogant jerks, you're going to get it. Versus other things I've read were, like, they were arrogant to them, but not as harshly as if they may have had some compassion. So, you know, I'm not sure what the truth of the matter is. But in large part, the behavior flip-flopped. And all of a sudden, the brown-eyed kids were doing better at math tests. The blue-eyed kids, not so much. And... You know, and, and this has been taken and used as like uh, attempts to make people sensitive to racial discrimination, and whatnot. And then there's some suggestion that it's not really an effective tool in that regard. But that's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is you've just created a completely bullshit hierarchy made that you made up. And look what happened. <laughs> you know, it's like you kids are better than the, these other kids. And they bought it. Now, kids are very malleable by their nature. You know, it's like kids are more sensitive to their environment than adults are because they have to be. That's that's their job is to absorb things and learn things. And they can learn the wrong things, you know. And um, 
And so the blue, blue eyed kids were doing better on math than being jerks to the brown eyed kids. And then the brown eyed kids were doing better in math because they'd been taught that they were better. Yeah, and so it's one of those things that I, I think I've said a couple times that like some left anarchists are like hierarchy is bad. And some of the, you know, more right side anarchists is like, you know, voluntary hierarchy is not a problem. And I don't have a problem with many things that are voluntary, but I start, you know, the more I read about some of these things, the more and more and more I become cautious and wary of hierarchies because you buy into it and, you know, that's what Milgram created. You know, he created this hierarchy that this person is beneath you. You're shocking them on behalf of the person that's above you. When he started messing with the hierarchy, you know, like at one, in one experiment, he had the person who was supposed to be shocked say, I ain't doing this. And then so the guy in the lab coat's like, how about if I do it? Because we need more test subjects. And so if I'm a test subject, we'll get two data points out of this thing. So you sit in my chair and tell him to shock me and I'll go sit down and get shocked. And he did. And then when you know, and he followed the same script the regular, um, you know, supposed learner would follow. And so when he got to the first time, he's like, whoa, let me out of here. Everyone did it because the hierarchy got flip flopped. You know, it's like I'm shocking the guy running this lab. And he said, let him out, you know, versus I'm shocking Joe nobody. And the guy running this lab tells me it's the right thing to do. You know, those are two very different messages, you know. And so, you know, the, the effects of perceived hierarchy scare me a little bit <laughs> you know it's um and it makes me really keep in mind the messages i give my kids uh too you know it's uh which is something that i kind of picked up a while ago but um it, this is really kind of emphasized it that i don't want to tell my kids they're bad kids that's assessing them you know versus you've done a bad thing fine saying that you know it's like you hit your sister you don't hit your sister that's a bad thing we need to address that Versus you are a bad kid. It's like, well, I'm a bad kid. And then down the road, if he internalizes that, well, now I'm at some point in my life where I need to make a decision. If my role is a bad kid, I'll do what the bad kid does. You know, and I don't want, you know, to encourage that in my children. So I'm really careful with the messages I give them because it can go bad. Yeah, that whole concept. That, that whole con yeah, I just I, I wanted to just let you roll. I was I was listening to that. Um yeah, no, I I that's 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 really important powerful stuff i think actually the whole the power of internalization mm. and when you tell a, a group of people or even tell an individual say oh because you're a member of this group there are these limitations on what you can do or even something as simple as well people of your kind tend not to be good at this activity you know that that's that's a real thing um, that that's a that can have real power, and right. I'm I'm the same way. I mean, I I try to to avoid that sort of stuff with my kids as well. But when you look out there at the wider society, and this is something that I think some kind of anarcho-capitalist types, and I'm not always 100% comfortable with with that term for a variety of reasons. But uh, mm -hmm. you know, despite being generally a fan of Rothbard and whatever, but some of some of them at least and i'm i'm not saying all by by any means but some people who would describe themselves or identify themselves by that term they seem to be not as aware of the fact that private institutions can potentially become oppressive too i guess right. is how i would put it and 
it's not to say that they have the same amount of raw power that the state does or to say that they're on the same level as far as being dangerous as the state, but that there's the same possibility in general and and kind of the larger and more hierarchical and more formalized and institutionalized an organization is the more it can sort of start to be like the state even if it's nominally a private institution that's something i I talked about a bit when i did way way back the episode on the iron law of oligarchy that Mm -hmm. these these things can you can have a private school that becomes every bit as rigid and oppressive as a public school and the fact that it's private isn't really going to change the kind of psychological and sociological dynamics at play inside of the organization right yeah it's people i think latch onto that and again it's a perception versus reality thing latch onto that private label it's like oh it's private in name therefore it is private you know it's like private prisons private prisons are not all that different from government-run prisons. You know, uh, from what I understand, there are some some measures of quality, and there are some valid criticisms about how um, prisoners are being treated in them. I haven't looked at it in detail, but I've seen like headlines mention that, and I have no reason to doubt it. But you know, that doesn't mean government-run prisons are okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or our institutions. I recently posted uh, on Facebook a link to your uh, "Fun with Fascism" episode because people are you know, criticizing, you know, Trump is fascist and they're posting articles about fascism that don't describe fascism as I understand it and have FDR kind of hailed as an anti-fascist, which fascinated and amused me, you know? And so I was like, all right, well, here's, here's some material on fascism. Um, you know, but yeah, the companies in fascist Germany were quote unquote private. Now, if I own something, but you tell me what to do with it, you know, my private ownership of that is effectively, you know, nil, you know, it's like if I don't get to control it because, you know, fascist Germany is telling me how to run my company and they've regulated it to the nth degree. And if I don't do it right, then, you know, they'll take it for the good of the motherland or, you know, whatever, then it's not really a private company. You know, it's like this whole, you know, fascism is right wing because it's for private enterprise. It's like, no, it's not. You know, it's like everything is for the good of the state. You know, that's um, if I have my name on a piece of paper says I own it, but I get to make no decisions about it. I don't. But people perceive it as being private, you know, and so buy into that. The fascism is the opposite of communism thing that you were kind of uh, debunking in your earlier talk. Well, um, it seems to me kind of wrapping this all up and mm-hmm. and, and tying it all together that the – People, people say that human beings are inherently good or that human beings are inherently evil. And ever since I've been an adult and really have been thinking about this stuff, it's always seemed to me that they're not inherently all one way or all the other. But right. that to – not to say that there's not some amount of, of genetics and that sort of thing involved, but that to a large extent people respond to this – the situations in which they find themselves and they're molded by their environment and their experience. And that one of the key factors in whether people behave more one way or another seems to be power seems to be Mm -hmm. whether they have power and then also who may or may not have power over them. And that the whole corrupting nature of power is really the key problem. What what are your thoughts on on that as power being kind of like the centerpiece of the problem? 
Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. Kind of it uh, goes back to what I was saying about hierarchies being really, you know, it's like that. This is one thing I think Milgram got wrong, that he was like, you know, to some degree authority is necessary because that's how we learn good from bad. And I don't know if, you know, it's like, all right, he, you know, this was 1961. I don't know what his public school experience was, you know, but, you know, like you mentioned Rothbard. It's like, all right, Rothbard has influenced my idea of right and wrong. He had no authority over me. You know, it's like authority, you know, lessons about right and wrong don't necessarily flow from authority. You know, they, they can come from other sources. You know, now, you know, I'm sure families were much more what are considered, you know, traditional nuclear families back then, too. And so family structure, I think, was more authoritarian back then. And so it's not surprising that he thought that, given the context of, you know, when he grew up. But power which often falls in into hierarchies, you know, it doesn't seem to be necessary to me to accomplish good. That was kind of what I was thinking as I'm reading through, through with some of Milgram stuff and disagreeing with him on this particular thing. It's like, you know, doing good can be decentralized, can be spontaneous, you know, cooperative efforts to do good are fantastic. If I'm trying to do good on my own, I can do less than I can amongst a group of people who are working together for a common goal. That's great. I don't need a hierarchical structure in order for me to do that. You know, it's that being able to opt out if the structure gets hijacked, um, you know, and we've seen social movements happen, you know, where I think you've mentioned in shows where somebody kind of jumps in front of the parade and acts like they've been leading it the entire time and steers it off in some direction it wasn't going in. You know, it's, um, I want to be able to opt out of something if it, if I start disagreeing with it, you know, whereas power, you know, people do bad without having power. Absolutely. You know, it's like, um, but power is kind of what differentiates in, you know, and obedience to power is kind of what differentiates people who, you know, like Jeffrey Dahmer and Adolf Hitler, obviously not that simple, but it's part of the equation. You know, it's like Jeffrey Dahmer hurt people. Adolf Hitler hurt a lot more um, because people believed him and did what he said because this is for the quote unquote greater good. Right. And I think a lot of people and it's like, well, we're not as um, naive as, you know, people in past years. So we wouldn't fall for that. But I'm not as convinced there's as much difference now as there was then. Um, and there's often when something bad happens, people start depersonalizing the person that did it. You know, whenever there's a mass shooting, people start calling the person who did it a coward. That's like one of the first words that comes up, you know, and so people want to de want to make that person different from me. I don't want to believe I could do that. So that person is in my outgroup. He is one of the others. There is something wrong with him. Um, and that's maybe not the best example because, you know, I don't think people are prone to do that. But, you know, they do the same thing when they hear about like the um, Milgram experiment. There was something wrong with those people. They, you know, I wouldn't do that. None of these people thought they would do it either. Um, and you need to kind of embrace the possibility that this could happen to you in order to be cognizant of it and kind of be wary of it. It's uh, if I walk around thinking that I will win every fight in my life and therefore I never prepare for a fight, the first fight that comes along, I'm probably going to get my ass kicked. <laughs> you know, it's like I need to be prepared for the fact that I could lose a fight in order to prepare for, you know, I'm not looking to get in a fight by any means and I probably would get my ass kicked, but that's not the point. Um, you know, you need to be aware of something bad happening in order to kind of steal yourself against it. And I've gone three or four tangents, but yeah, it's the, you know, coming back around. Yeah. Power can do good things, but I'm not sure it's necessary to do good things. 
you know, politically enforced centralized power versus the risks inherent of it. I'm not sure, you know, the benefits aren't worth the risks in my estimation. You know, it's some mental calculus that everyone has to do themselves, I guess. But Well, so I guess we've uh, all got to try and do our part in whatever humble way we can to to kind of encourage people to acknowledge their own inner potential to be mm-hmm. to be corrupted by power. And then we've also got the job of uh, trying to do what we can to sort of desacralize those who hold power. <laughs> you know, that's one right. of the reasons I have such a such a an amount of affection for Thomas Paine because of how how he mm. just desacralized the British monarch a few hundred years ago. And I think we need more more people out there really just just ridiculing and ripping into anyone who's in who's in a position of of coercive power and domination you know to rip into these presidents not not only are they are they not any better than us in a lot of ways they're usually worse than us regular folks you know and i I think that's one of the the big takeaways i guess from the milgram experiment above all else is this idea of of attacking the the figure who holds the power as being yes. a way to to fight it. Point out that the emperor does not have any clothes. Yes, yes. Well, Jim, uh, it's been a, a really interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I think the DHP listening audience is going to enjoy it as well. So, thank you very, very much for sharing uh, so much time and expertise with me today. Oh no, thanks for the opportunity again. Looking forward to uh, listening to it. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group, entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. 
And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.